All right. Did I forget anything, Nate? We good to go? All right. Thank you. Um, a few weeks ago, we started this uh, series, this short series that I uh, called Stretched. And in the introduction to this, a few weeks ago, uh, we said that all of us need margin. We just pretty much agreed to that, that we live in a culture that pushes us to our limit, and we need margin. We need margin in our time, in our finances, in our relationships, in our sexuality, in our morals, in our emotions. And we said that margin, for the purpose of this series, that we're defining margin as an amount available beyond what is actually needed, all right? It's, an, it's the space, amount of available space beyond what is actually needed. <clears throat> we gave a few examples of that in part one a few weeks ago, and we talked about stress and relationships, <clears throat> and we figured, we determined that they are related at times, that sometimes stress affects relationships, and sometimes relationships feed stress. And we concluded that the most important things in life happen in the margins, in the extra time, in the uncluttered space. And because relationships happen in the margin, we need to learn to create margin, and to practice the biblical principle of the Sabbath. And that was part one. In part two, we talked about our time. And we acknowledged the simple fact that our time is limited. And if you think it isn't, are you human or no? Because every human I've met, our time is limited. There is a time where there's going to be a period, and that's it. How's that for an encouraging start to the morning? Um, (laughs) But all of our time is limited. And here's the deal. It's all going to be spent. You don't get rollover time from one week to the next or from one month to the next or from a year or a stage in the life of your family to the next. You don't get to save it up and use it later. It doesn't work that way. And we said that someone is going to determine how you spend your time. Uh, And if you want to know who that someone is, you'll have to get the CD because I don't want to re-preach the message. But we said that we tend to allow the urgent things in life to push aside the important things Uh, So we determined that the most logical thing to do in light of that is to surrender your time to your Heavenly Father because the most important things in life happen in the margin, and He wants you to live with margin. As you look at the principles of Scripture, many of them are about helping us create margin in these areas of our lives. So a couple weeks ago in part three, uh, we talked about moral margin, and that was just a light, fluffy sermon uh, that didn't affect, you didn't really cut close to to where any of us do life, but we talked about moral margin. We said that everybody has moral limits. Everybody agrees there are limits morally. We talked about the conflicting messages that our culture sends us uh, about the the uh, when it comes to our sexual morality. And we looked at a couple of verses of scripture in 1 Corinthians six, and we and then we addressed three groups of people, and we suggested that we suggested some really practical action steps that were just kind of my suggestions. It wasn't like right out of the Bible, but it was my suggestions to help each of us create as much margin as possible when it comes to our morality. So today I want to finish up the series, and you're like, it's about time, and talk to you about creating professional margin. And today specifically, I want to talk to to those of you who are in the workplace, which is most of the people in our congregation. And if you're not in the workplace, chances are you do life with some people in the workplace. So if if you're past that stage of life and you look back on the workplace... I want you to think of it in terms of the influence that you might have in the lives of people that are close to you as it relates to their workplace, okay? So uh, I think there's something here for everybody. I want to talk specifically about how to take this principle of margin that we've been talking about and how do you restructure, how do you reorganize your time at work in order to get more done in less time, to have less stress, wouldn't that be nice? To potentially make more money. That would be cool. This is no guarantee. Okay? 
Um, and I think these are three things that we're all interested in, you know, to get more done in less time, to have less stress, and put ourselves in a position to where we take home more money. That'd be cool. Today, I want to talk about one simple principle that's found in Scripture, believe it or not. And you're like, I'll tell you what, if, if, if you struggle to read the Bible, I just want to encourage you to stay with it. Push through the parts that you don't understand or that are like a foreign language. Just push through it because you're going to, you're going to stumble upon some principles that are going to surprise you that they're even there. And so I would just encourage you, I know I'm a broken record on that, to read your Bible. But it's really cool. This principle is found in the Scripture. It's the kind of thing we wouldn't expect to find. Um, but it will give us a context for developing margin in the workplace. And if you're like me and if you're like most people, uh, the tendency in the workplace is to be pressed to the limits. Uh, the culture, would, our culture that we live in would, would press us to do that. Um, or, you know, we have too much to do, we can't get it all done, or we're stressed out because of work, or we don't have any emotional margin because we're stretched to the limit emotionally. And, and then the, all of that spills over into what we're like when we get home at the end of the day. <clears throat> and it, please don't look at anybody while I say those things, okay? Okay, so just don't be nudging anybody, elbowing anybody, looking at anybody, sideways glances, none of that. Uh, just, just kind of focus on this as it relates to you this morning, Okay. Oftentimes, we spend lots and lots of time on the job, and we don't seem to be rewarded financially. You ever been there? You can respond to that. You ever been there? You spend lots of time, you give lots of good energy and effort, and uh, you don't feel like you are really rewarded sufficiently for what you've contributed. And, and have you ever been there? Okay. Like, yeah, like Friday, you realized, whoa, uh, yeah, I wasn't rewarded financially in, for this week. Um, it, it, sometimes we look at that pay stub and it doesn't seem to equal up and equal, you know, equal to the work that we've put in in that pay period and the amount of time and energy and emotional uh, whatever that we invest there. So today we're going to open God's Word and we're going to look at one simple principle. And obviously there are lots of things we could talk about when it comes to developing professional margin. <coughs> we're going to look at one simple principle that's found in the Old Testament and reinforced in the New Testament. And it's alluded to throughout the Scripture, but we're just going to look at the Old Testament passage this morning. So let me tell you up front uh, that while I'm talking about this, you will be tempted to argue with me. But that doesn't bother me because I'm not that sensitive. So if that's fine. And your argument's going to go something like, well, yeah, duh, if I was doing what you do for a living, whatever that is, uh, of course. Or you might be thinking, well, if I own the company, maybe... Or if I didn't own the company, then maybe. Or if I was ever recognized for my skill and my work ethic, or if they ever made me a manager, or if they ever gave me that promotion that I've put in for seven times, then maybe. Or if I worked in a different department, or if I worked in a different work environment, then maybe what you're saying would apply to my life and my situation. But I just want you to listen for the next few minutes with this in mind. <coughs> Today I want to give us all a target to shoot for professionally. In other words, I'd like to paint as clear a picture as I can of what I believe the bullseye on the target ought to be for you as an employee, as an employer, as a manager, as an owner, as a leader, wherever you find yourself. This isn't a sermon that you can necessarily go out, have a conversation at lunch, and apply tomorrow morning. Okay? Just I want you to, I want to offer that disclaimer right up front. This might be something that you can begin to give some thought to so you can begin the process, um, and you might be able to begin it next week or next month, but it's a process. But I think 
uh, that you will agree with me that this is something that all of us should work toward professionally, even if it takes us a while to get there. Okay, so it might require you to be a little bit impatient, or a little bit patient, but a, a faithful to the process. So I want to give you a goal. I want to paint a picture of what could be and should be for you professionally as we open God's Word together. And God, who created this principle, God gives us this unbelievable insight into how to gain professional margin, regardless of whether or not you own the company, whether you manage the company, whether you manage a department, whether you punch a clock just hoping to survive another shift. Wherever you are, this is uh, appropriate. This is applicable. And for most of us, it's in the future. uh, But it's something to set our eyes on and to make career and workplace decisions accordingly in order to move us towards our preferred future. So if you have your Bible, um, I want you, if you're sitting somewhere where you can see it, uh, I invite you to turn uh, way back in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus. And uh, we were in Exodus last week in Dad's message, and we're going to just jump ahead a few chapters to Exodus chapter 18, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and we're in chapter 18 this morning. For those of you who've been around church for a while, who's the main character of the book of Exodus? Moses, Moses, right. And if you haven't read the book, that's fine, because there's a movie that maybe you've seen, I don't know, and it's 100% accurate. So here's what's going on with Moses and the nation of Israel. As you know, While the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, Moses goes into Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said no, and Moses said yes, and then God said yes, and God and Moses won. And so Moses leads the slave nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. That's the condensed version. What we need to understand, and this is hard for us to understand, that this was a nation of slaves. Not a nation with slaves, a nation of slaves. And there were anywhere from 200,000 it's about the population of Ellsworth, to as, many, to as many as a million of them. Think the population of the state of Maine. Nobody knows for sure, but the upwards of over a million slaves. Hundreds of thousands of them, as a group, they leave Egypt. These were slaves. They had no government. They had no social structure. They had no law. God hadn't given them any of the law or what we know as the Ten Commandments or anything like that. Uh, they had no organization. All they had, all they had at this point, leaving Egypt and heading out into the wilderness for who knows where, they had Moses, they had God, and they had their freedom. That's it. And for four months, they traveled out of Egypt, and they came to Mount Sinai, and pretty soon, we don't, they didn't know this at the time, but pretty soon Moses was going to go up to the top of this mountain, and God was going to give them their social order. God was going to give them the law. Um, and and here's, you know, here's how you're to live your life. Here's how you're to behave towards one another. But until then, uh, they didn't have any of that. All they had was Moses. <clears throat> so consequently, consequently, all these hundreds of thousands of people look to Moses for structure, and they look to Moses for order, and they look to Moses for help in setting the, settling their disputes. I mean, imagine that. Imagine the demands on him at that point. So as they approach Mount Sinai, Moses' father-in-law comes to visit him. Do you remember Moses' father-in-law's name? Remember his name? Three people remember Jethro. His name was Jethro. And Jethro, here's the thing about Jethro, he wasn't an Israelite. He didn't grow up as a part of the slave nation in bondage in Egypt. But he lived in the area. He was from Midian. And I'm I'm sure he was was very proud of his son-in-law. You know, it's like, hey, have you met my son-in-law? This is my son-in-law, Moses. You know, Moses is a big deal. You know, he's like a head of state out here in the wilderness, my son-in-law. So Jethro comes to visit his daughter. Her name was Zipporah. And... uh, 
That's unfortunate, but it was. And uh, so he comes to visit his daughter Zipporah and his son-in-law Moses, and he gets there late one afternoon, and they have dinner together, and he has some time with his grandkids, and he spends a night there at Moses and Zipporah's tent. And the next morning they get up, and Jethro decides to go to work with Moses to see exactly what it is that Moses does, because he needed to see it for himself, okay? Because it was hard for him when he's sitting on his tent porch with his neighbors, and they got to talking about what their kids were up to these days, and he's like, oh yeah, my son's a doctor. Oh, my son's an engineer. My son's a professor. What's your son-in-law do, Jethro? Oh, he's a head of state of this ragtag former slave nation that just came out of Egypt, and they're wandering around in the wilderness, and they're living in tents in the wilderness right now, and it's awesome. He's, he's really doing great for himself. I mean, this is a guy who went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh because he's the man, and he is a big deal. But Jethro just wanted to see for himself what exactly Moses was up to. So he got up in the morning and went to work with him. So that's where this story uh, picks up in Exodus 18, verse 13. <clears throat> this is after he spent the night there, and he says, this is verse 13. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. So Moses shows up to work in the morning. He sits down at his desk. He boots up his computer. And before he can even check his voicemail, all these people who have issues or questions or disputes with each other, they have lined up already to talk to Moses. And the line goes out the office door, into the reception area, down the hall, out the door, and around the block. And he's there from morning to evening trying to counsel and judge and adjudicate and settle disputes with all these people. Remember? No law. No structure. No government. Verse 14, when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? He's like, I mean, don't get me wrong, Moses. I'm super proud of you. This is, I mean, I love to brag about you. I'm so proud of you, but what in the world? I mean, this is unbelievable. This isn't sustainable, Moses. What in the world do you think you're doing? He says, why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? He can't believe what he's seeing. Here's the great leader, Moses. He's got people lined up further than you can see, and he's settling disputes, and it's like he's manning the complaint desk and and just sorting through all this minutia. And Jethro's like, this is what you do? This is a day for you? You've got to be kidding me. So Moses pushes back, and he answers him, verse 15, because the people come to me to seek God's will. In other words, There's a God component about this, Jethro. This isn't just me. I mean, this is what God wants me to do. He says, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses says, the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because this is what God has led me to do. Hard to argue with that. God needs me to do this for him. I'm doing God's work. And Jethro's thinking, well, you, this may be God's work, but it's not the way God wants you to do it. This is ridiculous. You're just sitting there while the line gets longer and longer, day after day after day. I mean, it's like, hello, Moses, you can't keep doing this. And this dilemma <coughs> points to something that easily becomes a dilemma for many of us. In just a minute, we're going to talk about this principle that solves this. But here's what it looks like for many of us. When you started your job, when you started on your career path, when you got transferred, when you took that promotion, when you started your business, when you, when you started wherever you are now, you went in with the idea that I'm going to do whatever is necessary to get the job done. Because I have work ethic, and I'm going to stick to it, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And it was both necessary and it was what you desired to do because you're like, okay, you know, like, come on, give me your your best shot. You know, pile it on me. Give me more responsibility. I'm going to show you that I'm capable. I'm a leader. I can handle it. And I want my supervisor, my manager, my boss, my customers, my competition, the board, whoever it is I answer to, to notice, to recognize my effort and to realize how much I can handle. I am high capacity. 
And sometimes it just seems natural and necessary to take on more and more. Sometimes it just seems natural and necessary to say yes over and over. Sometimes it just seems necessary, natural and necessary to try to tackle everything that gets stacked on your desk. It just seems natural and necessary because, you know, it's just the nature of the job. It's the nature of the business. It just comes with owning your own business. It comes with the territory. It comes with this position. It, it just seems natural and necessary to do it all. Because we want people to know that we're hard workers. Because we want people to know that we're capable and we're competent. We want people to know we're dependable and we can get the job done. And sometimes it's just necessary because there's nobody else to do it. And what at first seems natural and necessary, if you continue in that mode, you hurt your own productivity. If you continue to do everything that comes your way, to say yes to every opportunity, to say yes to every job, to say yes to every customer, to say yes to every opportunity, to make a few bucks, to say yes to impress every person that you want to impress so you can keep moving up, what happens eventually is sometimes you diminish your ability to do the job that you're supposed to do and to do it with any quality. And eventually it becomes pretty apparent to the people that matter your supervisor, your boss, your employer, your coworkers, your customers, that you might get the job done, but you aren't going to get it done without being stressed out. You aren't going to be very pleasant to be around while you're getting the job done, and the bottom line is you're not going to get it done with much quality. And somewhere along the way, we need to take into our world the advice that Jethro gives to Moses here in Exodus 18, and we have to identify the things that need to get our focus. Here's what I know about you because it's what I know about me. Two things. Number one, you're not really good at a whole lot of things. You're pretty, you're pretty good at a lot of things, but you're not really, really, really good at a whole lot of things. You're not an expert at a lot of things. You're really, really good at one or two things. And if, if we were to look at all the things that you could potentially do, there are only a couple of them on that list that you do really, really well. And when you are in your groove, I mean, you found your sweet spot, and you're doing the thing that comes naturally to you, people take notice of that. They compliment you. They commend you. They might even give you a promotion or a raise. But it's just so natural to you that when you're working in your groove, you know, whether it's on your job or in a volunteer role or in a hobby or when you're playing to your strengths, it just comes natural to you, and people are amazed by that. But you're not really, really good at a lot of things, even though you can pull them off. You might be able to get the job done, but it's not your area of expertise. The second thing I know about you, because I know it about me, is that of all the things that are expected of you, of all the things that end up on your desk, of all the things that make it onto your calendar and onto your to-do list, of all the things that other people ask you and expect you to do, there are only a couple of them that really make a difference in your workplace in your organization, in your business, for your customers, to your board, to your employer. In terms of moving the ball down the field, there are probably only a handful of things on your to-do list that really, really make a difference. In other words, if if you didn't get to the other eight things, but you did these two things really, really well because you're capable of that, you would be and you would become indispensable to your company, to your supervisor, to your customers, to your organization. But as tends to happen in any organization, in any business, regardless of its size, in any workplace, would you take care of this? Would you attend this? Would you go to that meeting? Would you train him? Would you work with her? Would you spend a little more time on that? 
Would you do me a favor? And before long, you're doing a dozen different things, most of which don't add any value, don't move the company or the organization along, yet somehow now they've become your responsibility. Here's the thing. When you can take the two or three things that you're really good at and you can put those together with two or three areas of responsibility in your workplace, those two or three points in your job description that really move your business forward, move your department forward, move your customer relationships forward, move your organization forward, when you can do that, when you can put those together, then you will find margin professionally. And I know, I know it sounds like pie in the sky, rainbows and unicorns kind of thinking, I know it sounds impossible for you right now, and I know you can't even imagine, you can't begin to imagine being in a work situation like that where you get to play to your strengths. I know it sounds so unrealistic, and you think that I must live in some parallel universe and can't begin to identify with your life, so you're just kind of tuning me out right now. I just want to encourage you to stay with me, because what you don't know, maybe don't know about me, is I've worked a job outside the church. I've worked three or four jobs outside the church for the last 18 years. The whole life of this church, I've worked a job outside the church. So... uh, I have had to apply these things myself. I've had to wrestle with this myself. I've had to struggle with creating margin in a couple or three different work environments at the same time. So just stay with me. I, just, it, it, I think we're going to get to some helpful stuff here. Um, you're probably not going to cheer me on when you hear it, but then maybe later when you're kind of like, wait, maybe he had a point. Maybe there's something to this. I think you'll find it helpful. Because I think the goal is ultimately to discover what is the thing that I can do better than anybody else? Or I, I should say this way. What is the thing I can do better, that are, better than anything else that I do? Let's put it that way. What's the thing I can do better than any? We, it's weird because we've been having this really weird, mysterious, because we're, we're on a path to solving our computer issues, knock on wood. So, so Thursday, our lights just start coming on and off on their own. <laughs> we're like, what? So if you're in the... Some of you were in the dark there for a moment, so just, you know, doze off or whatever, I don't know, whatever it happens. It's not them playing with stuff. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. If we've got to identify the thing that we do better than anything else that we do, what is that thing? And if you think you need to ask somebody else to help you answer that, you're probably not very used to the whole self-evaluation, honest assessment of, you know, you So let's get really real and honest uh, with where your strengths lie. Because the the point is that God made you that way. So how can I connect that part of me to a particular area of responsibility in my workplace? If I can determine the thing that I do better than anything else that I do, how can I then connect that to responsibilities in my workplace? Because when you match those two things up, you're going to do your best, you're going to excel, you're going to end up with margin professionally. But... When you hear me say that, there's something in many of you that might push back from that because you're like, well, that's easy for you to say. I just can't do that. Remember, I didn't say you could just run out of here tomorrow morning and apply all this and, and just it all changes tomorrow morning by lunchtime. You created margin professionally. But this has got to be the bullseye on the target. It's something you've got to begin to think about and make decisions in light of and uh, work towards in your job and your career. So anyway, back to the story in Exodus 18, because the story goes on. And Moses has basically said, hey, Jethro, I I know that you're my father-in-law and everything, but I have to do this. I respect you, but this is the thing God has called me to do. I'm doing God's work here. And here's what happens, verse 17. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. (laughs) Think about that. 
He sits there day after day after day, dealing with families and parents and kids and neighbors and disputes. And at the end of the day, he falls into bed exhausted. But he feels good because he believes what he's doing is good. He believes he's doing what God has led him to do. And his father-in-law has the audacity to come along and tag along. It wasn't even bring your father-in-law to work day. He just tags along and he says, what you're doing isn't good. That would be hard to take. I would not be receptive to that. goes on, verse 18. Jethro says, you and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. Do you ever feel like that at the end of a long day? Or at the end of a, I don't know, by lunchtime? (laughs) Or you get home and you're totally worn out, and if someone were to say, hey, did you move the ball down the field today? Did you make progress? You're like, to be honest, I'm not even sure what I did today. I was in constant motion. I'm not sure I was productive on anything. I mean, it was one thing after another. But in people, phone, texts, and emails, and meetings, did I make any forward progress? I I don't know. I'm just worn out. Jethro says, you're going to weigh yourselves out. He says, the work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Verse 19, listen now to me, and I'll give you some advice, and may God be with you. (laughs) When someone says, listen to me, I'm going to give you some advice, and may God be with you. You ought to be sitting down for that one. But uh, you got... Uh, he's like, you've got to understand the scenario. And here's the thing. I think for us men, we can relate to this because we got this ego thing going on. Not that women don't, but men, it's another category altogether. Imagine this. You're Moses. You're the man. You're a self-professed big deal. You know, you got all this ego thing going on. Imagine this scenario. You're Moses. You squared off with Pharaoh and the most powerful man on earth, and you won. And you held up a stick and a sea parted and threw that stick down and it became a snake. You are the man. I mean, you are a big deal. Along comes your father-in-law who has tended sheep all of his life in a wilderness somewhere, never even seen a big city. He's not an Israelite and he's completely ignorant when it comes to the context in which you're working and what God has called you to. And your father-in-law, after observing for one day, he says, let me tell you what you need to do, buddy. I got this thing figured out for you. Do you think you'd push back a little bit? I know I would. I would, and I do, because I live in a world where anyone who's attended church at least twice thinks they can do a better job leading a church than I can. And uh, some of them are bold enough to tell me that. (laughs) Everybody just thinks that, yeah, we can do that. Wouldn't want to preach necessarily and do that kind of thing in the the life with people, but when it comes to running this organization part of it, it's like, well... Now, Pastor, what you ought to do is this, and I don't like it when you guys do that. And have you ever thought about this? And I really think this would work better. And sometimes the advice we get is really good. But there's something in me that rises up and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you can tell me how to run my deal, maybe you should attend church more than four times a year. And maybe you should get involved in something and think of someone other than yourself and your own agenda. And uh, maybe you should maybe follow me around for a week or so and... uh, Thank God I never say those things, but I think them. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what that is? Do you know what that is? It's pride. It's my pride. It's my ego. The idea that you can't possibly teach me anything about what I have to do until you've done what I do. That's just pride, and it's in all of us. So Jethro walks in to his big shot son-in-law and says, Moses, I can help you out. And the interesting thing about this, and the scripture talks about this being a part of, of Moses' character, is he had the meekness and he had the humility to listen. And now I just step back. Can we just let that sink in? Moses, 
I mean, when you talk about the, the people in the redemption story of mankind and the big-time players, Moses is right up there. And he had the humility to listen. And the advice that Jethro gave him, even though it must have seemed unbelievably impractical, I mean, Moses was so busy, he didn't even have time for this conversation. You know what I mean? He's like, I'm busy. I don't have time to listen to you. Tell me what I should be doing. But Moses listened. And in listening, he was able to apply the principle that we all need to apply. So Jethro says, here's some advice. I hope this is from God. God be with you. Verse 19. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Here's what he does. This is so great. Jethro helps Moses to identify the two things that Moses has to do. In other words, Moses, there's a whole list of things you could do. There are a couple things that you and only you can do right now. So Moses, this is what you've got to organize your day around. Not the 50 things, not the 20 things, not the 10 things, these two things. Number one, he says, you are the people's representative before God. That was his role as prophet. You're the people's representative before God. In verse 2, he says in verse 20, teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they're to live and how they are to behave. So Moses, number two, you are responsible to see that their disputes get settled and you're responsible to teach them how God wants them to live. That's what you're responsible for. You're ultimately responsible for it. But let's talk now about how you're going to implement that. So verse 21. He says, these are the things you ought to do. It's your responsibility, but you're not going to do it all. So here's the plan, verse 21. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide for themselves. That'll make your load lighter because they will share it with you. That's margin. Verse 23. If you do this and God so commands, you'll be able to stay on the strain. That's margin. And all these people will go home satisfied. He says, Moses, this is how you can do less and accomplish more. Moses, you've got to do fewer things and you're going to get more done. You're going to do less and you're going to have more margin and it's a win for you and it's a win for the people. It's a win for what God wants to accomplish through you. I love verse 24. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. That picture of humility and one of the greatest leaders that humanity's ever known. Here's what we need to do to create and gain professional margin. It can be summed up in one word, and the word is focus. Focus. Less is more. You and I have to discover what is the thing that we do that allows us to excel. We've got to figure that out. And then we've got to figure out a way to match that to our job description and to do fewer things and accomplish more because productivity is not measured in terms of busyness. How's it going? Man, so busy. Oh, that's so impressive. You're the only busy human I know. (laughs) How's it going? I'm busy is not an answer to how's it going. Productivity is not measured in terms of busyness. Productivity happens when you're able to focus on the few things that you're really good at, the things that make a difference in the mission of the company you work for, the business you own, or the department where you work, or wherever your scenario is. Another way of saying it is to play to your strengths, and there have been like 97,000 books written on that, 
but to play to your strengths and delegate your weaknesses. Play to your strengths and delegate your weaknesses. And if you don't do that, you're going to end up doing what most of us do. You're going you're gonna to feel like, no, 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 no. Wait, first of all, I need to work on my weaknesses. Because weaknesses, I don't need to improve my strengths. I need to work on my weaknesses. And if I can improve in those areas, because, you know, I really need to be really, really good at everything. Oh, that's right. You're like superhuman. You'll, I think you'll spend a lot of time trying to uh, kind of improve, trying to turn your weakness into a strength, which is a waste of time. Because if your weakness is a, on a scale, if your strength is a nine, this area over here, and your weakness over here is a three, and you work on it, work on it, work on it, and you get it to a five, congratulations, you've reached mediocrity. So what's the, it's a waste of time. And I didn't come up with that principle. I read that. I heard John Maxwell say that years ago. But that's what we tend to do. We tend to work on our weaknesses. Play to your strengths. The best thing you can do to figure out the things that you were created to do is to, 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 to have some honest introspection. To ask yourself some really hard questions. I'm not saying that other people can't be a part of that process, but uh, they're less important than you being completely honest with you. Um, to figure out what it is that you were created to do, to match that to a job description and give it your all. Oh, yeah, I said that. Give it your all. Work hard. You want to create margin professionally? Give it your all. Apply yourself. Play to your strengths. Delegate your weaknesses. I think when you do that, you're lining yourself up with what God would have you do and with who God has created you to be. And you get more of the important stuff done with less stress, and then you have more margin at work, and you have more margin in your emotions, which gives you more margin in your relationships. And here's why you'll have margin. Because when you're working in your zone, you get more done in less time. You get the important things done in less time than if you're chasing the urgent things. That's time margin. You get more accomplished with less stress. That's emotional margin. When you're satisfied in your job and in your career and in your professional life, you are stronger morally. You learn to avoid certain temptations. That's moral margin. So I want to give you three things that you could do to begin to think in this direction. And this is me taking some ideas from mostly other people that have influenced me, but taking some ideas uh, that out, of, out of this passage. So this is not, I'm not going to give you three points from the Bible now. Okay? Uh, we've used the Bible story as, an, as just the basis for the principle. Um, and when I say these things, some of you are going to go, that's perfect, that's exactly what I needed to hear, wrote them down, that is really helpful, I'm going to do this. Like two of you are going to do that. And some of you are going to like, well, that's nice for you, to, you Todd, you know, because you can stand up there and say that, but it's totally impractical because of where I work, because of the local job market, because of my lack of education, because of my lack of marketable skills. Todd, you don't know what you're talking about. Again, I just want to, take, to, to kind of paint a picture of what could be and should be for you professionally, a picture of a preferred future in the workplace. So let me give you these real quick. At some point in the next few days, let's take some time to really begin to answer these questions. So number one, question number one, ask yourself, what defines success for the person in my position at work? Okay, it's carefully worded. It's not necessarily what defines success for you. It's what defines success for the person in my position in my workplace, in my department, in this small business that I run whatever your situation is. Not, not what have I been asked to do. Not what responsibilities end up on me. Not what was the last thing that was handed to me at the last minute. 
but specifically in your job, what is success for the person who does what you do? Answer that question. I'd encourage you to write that down or journal it somewhere. Second thing is this. Write down the ideal job description for you with these things in mind. I don't know if you've ever written a job description for yourself. How many of you have ever written a job? You've been in a position where you've had to write a job description for somebody else. A few? How many of you have ever had to write a job description for yourself? That's even harder. Okay. Keep these things in mind. Success for the person in your position, which we've already determined. So you can't, these are in order. You've got to do them in order. So you've got to do number one. You've got to ask, what's, the, what's success for the person in my position in my, at my workplace? Once you've determined that, keep that in mind as you write down the ideal job description for you. Keep in mind the mission of your business, your organization, your department, etc. What is the mission? And third, keep in mind, because we've got to be realistic, keep in mind your particular education and skill set. Okay? Let's live in the real world. If you could do, in writing this job description, you're answering the question, if I could do exactly what I knew I was gifted and skilled to do, if I could do that in this setting where I'm working now, and someone would pay me for that. Here's what I would do. Here's how it, what it would look like. And here's where I think I can add the most value. And in that, with that mindset, begin to answer this question write down the ideal job description for you. Here's what success is. Here's what the mission of the entity that, pays, that writes my paycheck is. Here's what I can do with excellence. So what would be the ideal thing for me and the ideal position for me on this team? I'm constantly talking to people who are trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up and what they want to do when they grow up and what they think they should be paid for what they can do when they grow up and why they should further their education when they grow up and why they should get paid a certain amount even though they don't have a degree in a frame in a box in the basement. And, and these are usually people in their 30s and 40s that I'm having this conversation with. Uh, and, and so some of you have had those conversations with me. Don't think you're the only one. Okay, I'm not here telling your story with changing the names. I have these conversations with lots of people. So don't, don't, and don't feel bad and don't think you're the only one that wrestles with this. Because I have these conversations all the time, and I'm telling you, if you're frustrated with where you are, where you find yourself in your career or lack thereof, if you aren't willing to do these things, these three simple things, not simple, but they're basic, these folk, three focused things, if you're not willing to do that, then I'm not sure I can help you anymore. Because if what you're looking for is a silver bullet, it don't exist. It's not an employer's job to help you figure out what you should be doing. And your employer isn't obligated to pay you what you think you should be paid. First, write your own job description. Get a definition of success in your workplace. Get a clear picture of the mission of the company or the organization that writes your paycheck. Or if you own your own business, clarify for yourself why you're doing what you're doing and be completely honest with yourself and figure out what you were designed to do and what your strengths are and where they lie. And if you'll actually do this process... And if you'll do this in light of what you discover in working through this process, you will answer the question of what is the best position for me to fill? Where should I be on the team? Or should I even be on this team? Maybe it's time for me to find a new team. And the third thing is this. After you've done these two things, is to have a sit down with your employer. 
maybe it's the owner of the business, maybe it might be a manager, a supervisor. If you own your own business, it's probably a family member, most likely your spouse that you should have this conversation with. Uh, but to sit down and say, I've been thinking, I really want to see this business, I want to see this organization, I want to see this department, I want to see this team succeed, and I think I've figured out a way for us to be more efficient, to be more successful, and here's what I'm really, really good at, and I've written this job description where I think I would add more value. Would you be willing to work with me to tweak my job description to move me into a place where I can add the most value to you, to the rest of the management team, to this department, to this company, to this organization. I've worked two jobs in the last um, uh, like 17 years where I ended up writing my, uh, one where I ended up writing my own job description, and, uh, and because of that, I ended up working fewer hours, and I made less money, but I was more productive, and I had more margin, not necessarily financially because I made less money, but I had more margin in my life because I said I can only work this number of hours. Um, but here's my job description, and I think this is where my strengths lie, and I think I can really add value. It was a great relationship. I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds like, what are you talking about? Well, maybe it's, if you think this is crazy, it's only because you've never tried it. You can't, oh, and you can't start with a conversation with your employer. You can't start there. Don't start with a sit-down with your employer. Yeah, I was thinking about trying to figure out what I do best here and where success is for a person in my position, and, and uh, I was trying to, thinking about writing a job description. What do you think about that? No, do, no, do, do the hard things first. Got to take the other steps first. Can't just waltz in and say, yeah, I've been, I think I need a new position, and I deserve a raise, and I deserve a promotion. Why are you such a jerk to me? You can't just do that and walk into that conversation without doing the hard work first. So that's why there's a step three. You don't get the step get to skip steps one and two. But after you've done steps one and two, set up an appointment with whoever it is that you will report to. Uh, and I, I have found, in my own experience and in talking with a lot of you, that a reasonable employer is probably not going to say, this is great, let's give you a raise and a promotion and a corner office and an extra month's vacation. Way to go. Probably not going to play out quite like that. Okay, Not going to happen. But a reasonable employer is going to think, wow, you've been, you've been trying to think about how to make both of us more successful. A reasonable employer is going to take that seriously and look at it and understand that nobody's good at everything. And it isn't just a matter of having the right people in the workplace. It's a matter of having them positioned correctly. Jim Collins in his book, uh, Good to Great, says it's not about having the right people on the bus. It's about having the right people in the right seats on the bus. And a good, reasonable employer is going to know that. And at some point in this conversation, you're going to have to ask your boss, so in light of this, in light of all this, what would you like me to stop doing? Because we both know that there are these things over here. These are the things that move us forward in the workplace. These eight things that seem to end up on my to-do list all the time don't move us anywhere. I'd like more time to focus on the things that move the ball down the field so that you and I and we as a company can be more effective. So what would, in light of that, what would you like me to stop doing? If you're an employer or you're in a management position or you have a supervisory position or you have the authority to hire and fire and make recommendations when it comes to personnel, you know this is huge. And if you'll sit down and talk with the people on your team, it'll help them work through this and everybody wins. Not only does everybody win individually, but the organization wins, your business wins, your department wins, your customers win. Uh, Greg Maddox, how many of you know the name? Greg Maddox was a major league pitcher. He was elected to, now you know it, right? He was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame last year. He was a starting pitcher for the Atlanta Braves from 1986 to 2003. Then he played for the Cubs, the Dodgers, and the Padres. 
Greg Maddox is number two all-time for strikeouts by a National League pitcher with 3,371 strikeouts over his 23-year career. Meanwhile, at the plate, his career batting average was 191. That's .191. In his 23-year career, I never heard anyone complain about Greg Maddox's batting average because he struck out 3,371 batters. He, he won 355 games. He won the Cy Young four times. He played in three World Series. And nobody complained about his bat- batting average of under 200. Bobby Cox never had to take him aside and say, Greg, look, if you don't, if you don't get your batting average up, I'm not sure we can keep you around. <laughs> never had that conversation with him. It was never an issue. Why? Because he's a pitcher. He had one thing to do. It's like, okay, no problem. Greg, we can get other people to hit. We can get other people to hit for average. We can get other people to hit for power. We can get other people to run. We can get other people to play defense, even though he won a gold glove like 17 times. You can just keep doing what you do, and you just keep pitching because you are indispensable to this team. Could have picked any elite athlete probably, but as you discover and as you move to commit to this process, it's not a one-time, oh, great, Todd, I'm going to do that. I'm going to pray a prayer and fill out a card, and then everything's going to change. No. Commit to the process. As you commit to the process, you'll become more and more indispensable. You will have more time and less stress. You'll find more meaning in the workplace because of this principle that God designed when he created us as individuals with certain skills and certain strengths. So I would encourage you to begin this week working towards spending the majority of your time and energy at work doing only what you can do and begin this process. I just want to leave you with a few verses of Scripture and I'm done. Proverbs, Proverbs has a lot to say about work. Proverbs 12:11 says, Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. Proverbs 14:23 says, All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 18:9, One who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. Whew, that's... Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They'll serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. Proverbs 31, 31, speaking of the wise woman, says, honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise. And then we jump all the way to the New Testament and Paul writes this and uh, maybe just let this be your motto. That whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Thank you for hanging with me in this series. It hasn't, it's, it, it hasn't been an easy one to present, and it's probably been harder to listen to. Uh, and thanks for the great follow-up conversations we've had. And uh, we haven't covered every area where we tend to be stretched and margin is squeezed out, but um, I think we've, we've got enough to kind of digest for a few weeks. So I hope you'll commit to the process. And whatever you do, that you work at it with all your heart is working for the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've created us with strengths. You've created us with weaknesses. You've created us for a purpose. You've also ordained work as a noble thing. God, I pray that you would help us in our individual work scenarios to be able to match together the things that we are, where we excel, those strengths that you've given us, those natural gift things that you've given us, that we match that with responsibilities in the workplace the best that we can. This is not a one-time conversation with a supervisor. This is a process. So, God, I pray that you would just lead us uh, 
as individuals, as employers, as business owners, as employees, as managers, as supervisors, lead us to be committed to this process. May everything that we do in the workplace, the attitude with which we do it, the ethic with which we accomplish our work, may all of that bring honor to your name. Thank you that you care about the little things in our lives, the nitty-gritty, real-life stuff. Thanks that that's important enough to you to provide principles in your word that we can apply to our everyday. And we're grateful and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.